Welcome to the Northwestern Masters of the Arts and Sports Administration Revenue Above Replacement Podcast. I'm Bryce Clinton. This week, we have a bit of a different episode. We take a break from our singular guests that Adam and I interview in normal weeks and have a panel discussion. That panel discussion comes as part of the, the Lunchtime Table Talk series done by the School of Professional Studies, where they ask the MSA program to have a discussion about athletics, more specifically, college athletics. College athletics is something that, that many of us and, and many of you listeners are, are ingrained in every day. And, and even if not ingrained in, many of us hold dear because of, of those affiliations with our universities or the nostalgia that's there for you know, the college athletics that, that we know and love. College athletics is still here and still going strong, but it's continuing to evolve in many ways. And that's what this, this panel discussion dives into with three experts in various different fields of college athletics. Those experts include Adam Cook, Kristen Kane Herberson, and Lakeisha Marsh, who all have really different backgrounds when it comes to not only playing athletics in college, but what they do today. So we hope that you all enjoy this panel discussion with those three experts around the evolution of college sports. Good afternoon to everybody. Welcome to, to this installment of the Northwestern University School of Professional Studies Thought Leadership Series. You know, this thought leadership series put on by the School of Professional Studies is a program of online events featuring a wide array of compelling topics and thoughtfully led conversations throughout the academic year. Our topic today, the evolution of college sports. My name is Bryce Clinton, and I'm the faculty director of the Masters of Sports Administration program here at Northwestern, where I also teach a course in the technology of sports. You know, in recent years, there's been a fundamental shift within college sports, you know, in that landscape. We've seen changes to the core of college athletics that will have a, a lasting effect for decades, from things like name, image, and likeness, to content rights and distribution, to conference realignment and new transfer rules. All this change comes amid a global pandemic, which has forced universities to adjust approaches and business models and fans like us to shift the way that, that we interact and consume sports. These rapid changes bring enormous promise to athletes and fans alike, but they also bring questions about how that evolution will continue and evolve. Today, to discuss that evolution, we have three experts that bring a wide array of experience across the college sports landscape. You know, before we introduce those experts, we would encourage you all that have joined us today, and again, we thank you for joining us. If you have questions throughout, to add those to the chat, I'll do my, my best as we moderate things and sort of play traffic cop here to insert those questions in the conversation, but we'll also leave time at the end of our discussion to address some of those questions and, and additional ones that come up. So without further ado, let's meet those panelists, starting with Adam. Hey, Bryce. Thanks so much. Uh, yeah, my name is Adam Cook. Um, I am a professor in uh, the MSA program. I teach organizational leadership uh, as well as globalization of sport. Um, where we look at um, the theory and application of leadership principles. And then in globalization sport, we look at uh, the different um, society and cultural issues that sport impacts. In addition to uh, what I do at Northwestern, I am also the director of athlete development and partnerships at Campus Inc., uh, decorated apparel uh, marketing and branding organization based out of Champaign-Urbana, and then here in downtown Chicago, uh, where I oversee all of our uh, relationships and um, uh, business development into the sports space, uh, particularly in NIL. Thank you, Adam. Kristen. 
Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Kristen Kane Herbison. Uh, I began teaching in the MSA program last academic year where I co-led a course that was focused on student support services and college athletics. Um, I had a 22 year plus career in college athletics. I began at the University of Illinois down in Champaign and finished my career uh, here at Northwestern. I left, my last role was a senior associate athletic director for academic services and student development. And in that position, I had the opportunity to work directly with student athletes and also as an athletic administrator. So a lot of my kind of focus and perspective today will be from the student athlete experience. And I'm happy to be here with you. Thank you, Kristen. Lakeisha. Hello, good afternoon, everyone. I'm Lakeisha Marsh. Um, I currently teach the legal and ethical issues in the MSA program. Um, and I, I guess I can start all the way back. I've been involved in college athletics uh, since I started college. Um, I was a volleyball player, so I played in college um, and served on the um, NCAA Student Athletic Advisory Committee while an athlete both representing my institution and our conference. Um, I then later went to law school, left law school and joined the NCAA where I was actually a member of the um, Academic and Membership Affairs. Right now it's AMA. Previously it was Membership Services when I was there. Left there, um, that was after law school, I should say. So went to law school, then went to the NCAA, then left the NCAA and went in-house to an education system where I was general counsel for an education system left there and I'm now in private practice where I find myself uh, busy in college ath athletics as I chair our higher education and collegiate athletics sports practice, as well as our uh, government affairs and public policy sports, I'm sorry, sport practice group. So that's me. Thank you, Lakeisha. And I think, Lakeisha, with that background, you give us a really great jumping off point for this conversation. I think one of the things that we really wanted to talk about today that really is impacting the evolution of college sports and, and sports in general, and, and all ranges from athletes to us as fans and so on, is you know name, image, and likeness. And with that background, I, I think for everyone and for all of us panelists and everyone listening, can you give us just a, a, an overview of the legislation that has impacted NIL or has sort of set the groundwork for where we are today? I think you can't even discuss NIL without starting with the Austin case, because I think in June of 2021, we're, we're what, approaching the, almost a year uh, where the Supreme Court's unanimous decision actually opened the door for student athletes to actually receive um, benefits in a sense, and, and more so stripping away uh, of the current amateur model that had been in place. It was probably the first little jab at that amateur model. Uh, shortly thereafter, or even prior to that decision, we were waiting for that decision, you had a number of states that were uh, putting forth legislation in their states that would actually allow student athletes to be paid for their name, image, and likeness. Uh, then you have the Austin decision in June 2021, and then in July 2021, um, the NCAA, NCAA took a position that most didn't think they would ever get there, and they actually suspended their um, the regulations surrounding athletes being paid for their name, image, and likeness, allowing for athletes, uh, if they were at a state that did not have current legislation, they were allowed to adhere to the policy and they wouldn't be deemed um, ineligible if they were receiving payment for their name, image, or likeness, and agreeing with the states that had legislation in place, uh, basically saying you have to follow state law. And so we had a little bit of a who was going to be the first there, who was going to get to, who's going to have the best NIL legislation in place, uh, which also always brought up the argument is that 
you, you can't regulate that way. It's impossible for the NCAA to regulate. It's impossible for states to effectively regulate all that's going on in the NIL space when every state is different. So the need and the push, which we're still waiting for, is actually federal legislation that will govern all of this. Um, and, and so, you know, we've had we've seen many bills and things of that nature from various uh, congressmen, but nothing has actually made it into law. So we are still waiting. Um, and as we wait, there is a number of things that's continue, continues to happen. It's more little jabs at the NCAA amateur models. You know, you have the Federal Labor Standards Act litigation that at first we thought it was put to bed, but Austin changed things. So now we have a Johnson v. NCAA case. And, and now you have states that are realizing, oh, wow, name, image, and likeness is in place by the NCAA, you know, they're our, our, our state law is worse than the next state law. So let's repeal. So now you have states that are repealing their NCAA legislation as everybody has jumped in to try to get involved in this. Let's figure out a way that we're going to be able to pay student athletes and who's going to do it better, which institution is going to have the better program. And so, you know, I, I call it. What we have now is, and Bryce, I think you mentioned it before, it's the Wild West. It's literally the Wild Wild West where everyone is doing something different. You had Adidas with their, you know, we still yet to still yet to know the details is how I put it. Um, huge 50,000 student athletes in honor of Title IX. Where any, at any of our schools where, where you're a partner with Adidas, you're going to get an NIL um, deal. All of that, still no details, still leaves so much unanswered, still leaves so much room for regulations um, because we all don't know what really we're doing. Everybody is just kind of going with the flow, um, but it's it could change any day now. I was like, and that's how, and that's where we're at. NIL is changing, but it has been beneficial to student athletes uh, right now in the midst of the turmoil and we don't know what's going on. We can say that student athletes are being benefited by it. Yeah, and I think as, as as you know, all of these things that Lakeisha unpacked, right? There, there is so much that's going on with it, and it really does impact, you know, college athletics in so many ways. I think, Kristen, with your background from you know inside college athletics departments and at universities, how do you see that impacting the universities, or how are what is the, the university response to that? You know, and all the things that Lakeisha talked about, and, and obviously knowing that they're continuing to evolve. Right. I think, you know, you'd be hard pressed to find any coach or athletic administrator across the country who doesn't believe that student athletes should be able to capitalize on their name, image and likeness. You know, that that time has passed. Student athletes should have that opportunity. That being said, Lakeisha mentioned the Wild West. It's such chaos because there's so much inconsistency across states and how different universities can apply some of these guidelines and policies that it's impossible for coaches to recruit the way they might normally recruit because what you can do in one state, you can't do in another state and so on and so forth. Um, and I think even for the current student athlete population um, to be able to manage some of those things, it's a real challenge. So, you know, the, the goal with athletic ministry right now is to just try to stay on top of everything that's happening. Lakeisha mentioned that Adidas deal that came out yesterday. I mean, that was yesterday, right? So it's changing every single day. Um, that's going to push a bunch of other large corporations to do similar things. What is Under, Under Armour going to do? What's Nike going to do? Um, you know, and so now you have student athletes who maybe weren't even thinking about NIL. I'm not in a sport or, you know, of a position where that might be an opportunity for me. And all of a sudden here it is on the table. And so athletic departments really have to focus on what can they they control because they can't control all of these outside factors. They can't control what's going on in other states. So what do we need to do right now? Um, and that focus really needs to be on um, 
you know, thinking about making sure that they're tracking what student athletes are doing, um, that they're staying in compliance as best as possible, that they're monitoring that. Most institutions are working with outside companies to help them monitor that and using kind of software that's been developed specifically for the purpose of NIL. Um, and then the goal is really educating the student athlete population about what does it mean? How do you protect yourself? How do you develop your brand? Um, those are the things that the institutions can control right now. And that's what they have to be focused on. Yeah, again, I mean, I think Wild West is an app comparison. I, I remember back when I was in the program, not on the same level, but, you know, social media was just becoming a thing. It shows my age, but it, it was similar in the sense that no one knew how to address it and no one knew how to use it. This is different because it impacts so many different facets, but it is similar in the sense that, you know, we're really just getting our footing in all these different areas. You know, Adam, you come at it from a different angle, right? From a different angle from an athlete perspective and looking to then sort of implement some of these things for those student athletes. How have you seen that sort of pick up and roll as, you know, this legislation and NCA's reaction to it and all of those things? Yeah, I, so uh, like Lakeisha, I was a collegiate volleyball player. And then after my playing career, I I coached um, both men's and the women's program for um, a little bit. And and the first thing that was really exciting to me about this was seeing that, you know, of course there's, you know, the the football and the basketball players that are, are gonna, you know, have opportunities for these massive endorsement deals, but there's also this whole other swath of, athletes and and sports who can leverage their, their community and and leverage their niche fan base in a really meaningful way. Um, You know, I, I know as a volleyball player, it's a really tight community and um, you know, you might not have this massive uh, national influence, but within the volleyball community, you know, people are very supportive and and very aware of what's going on. Um, you can look at Olympic sports being the same way, right? Swim and dive track and field. Um, it's been really exciting to, to chat with athletes and and into kind of put these opportunities in front of them that they didn't really think at first would be super beneficial. Um, and, and much like Kristen was mentioning, you know, as we, we tried to approach, um, this, this opportunity in the conversation from an athlete first perspective, right? Um, this is all brand new and hearkening back to, to my time as a coach, there's so many things that you have to be aware of. Um, and now this is an additional thing that you have to have to have on your radar, um, as an administrator or a coach. And so, you know, we, we always try to approach, um, uh, this opportunity with with transparency and and with grace both to the athletes and to the university professionals because it's so new um and and there isn't a lot of guidelines and so we're all just kind of figuring out things as we go and i think the um the uh, maybe scary or, or, or bummer part of it is that not everybody is looking to, uh, to do things the right way. They see an opportunity and they want to, you know, they want to snag some stuff. And so, um, you know, when we work with athletes or administrators, we really see a lot of that, uh, kind of not trepidation, but a, a little bit of caution around, Hey, you know, who, who are you, what's going on here? What, what are we actually doing? And, um, to Lakeisha's point, you know, this Adidas deal, there's so many things that, what, what are the details, you know, what, how much are athletes actually making from this opportunity, or is it just leveraging, you know, influence in a, in a particular way? So, um, it's, it's a really challenging space, but also really, really exciting. You know, one thing that, that Lakeisha brought up is that that legislation at a state level is different, right? And and that plays into sort of the Wild West feeling that we have. And I guess to all of you, to any of you, do we see that 
as it's currently constituted. Now, spinning it forward, it may change. It may be different. And the hope is, but do we see that having an impact on recruiting, an adverse impact on recruiting or an adverse impact on, on universities as a whole because of some of the, I guess, intrinsic advantages you could see from loosening of guidelines in certain states and, and not in others? Yeah, I, I'm unmuted. So I'll, I'll go ahead and jump in here first. Um, yeah, I, I mean, we have seen a, a complete range of approaches and responses um, across institutions, right? We've worked with, not, not with, but we've had conversations with athletes at institutions that um, are very excited. Again, we, you know, we're, we're trying to be transparent. When, when we work with a new athlete, I always send an email to the compliance director. Hey, just so you know, you know, this is what's going on. And sometimes you get um, administration that's super excited. Hey, great. Super excited for you. Um, sometimes you get administration that are, are very cautious and concerned. And so, um, you know, those, those state legislation uh, differences, um, I think are showing up at every level of, of this, um, uh, opportunity and where it's impacting athletes and coaches and, and administration. And from a recruiting standpoint, I, I think it, it's almost impossible to imagine a world where it's not leveraged, um, as, as a recruiting opportunity. And, you know, I think that there's kind of two ways that it can go. There's there's the the negative way where it becomes into this this new arms race, right? Um, and I, I think there's a positive spin to it potentially as well if it's done right, where you you talk about this being a a, a potential professional development opportunity. Um, I remember my time as an athlete. I didn't have time to get an internship. I didn't have time to, you know, gain these hard business skills that if I wasn't going to go pro. Um, I was going to need to be successful in life and negotiating contracts, understanding brand building, sales and marketing. Um, you know, these are all tangible business skills that you can get. And, you know, I, I think that there's a positive spin to a school being able to say, look, you can get some tangible skills by being a student athlete here through the opportunities that we create for you through NIL. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I, it will impact recruiting the direction that it goes, I think could be one or the other. Um, but I, I don't think that, that getting away from it impacting recruiting is possible. Right. No, I, I think I'll, it, it is impacting recruiting. I'm seeing it from, you know, some of the stories I'm getting from clients or just the creative ideas that I'm getting from a number of, of clients in the NIL space. Um, and, and it's, we talk about the negotiation and the business skills that student athletes, be, they learn now at, at such a young age because of this. Um, but there's also the flip side. You know, you have the stories of student athletes saying, I'm not going to speak to you until you actually come with an NIL deal, deal for me. That's not what this was intended to do. That's where the recruiting and where the regulations are going to come from. Because when you have those type of recruiting tactics or, you know, boosters using them, like, you know what, we're going to pull together all of our money. We're going to make sure that we have the best NIL deals for our students. That's a that's that's inducing. That's a recruitment advantage that they're trying to provide any student athlete or football student athlete or basketball student athlete that comes to their campus. So we're seeing that now. And I think we're just what really probably not even a year into this yet. And so all of the issues that are now surfacing around NIL will, I definitely think will lead to some type of regulation. Now, whether that's the NCAA, whether that's state, whether that's federal, 
We don't know that yet, but I can see to, to preserve, you know, the college athlete. Um, I do see there will be some, you know, some regulation around that because the recruiting issues are surfacing. I think just last week there was a, um, and it's student athlete unknown, university unknown, but a 2023 football prospect that conceivably is getting an NIL deal that could pay him up to $8 million uh, by the end of his junior year of college, you know? And so he's a 2023 prospect. When it gets out, what school that is and what student that is, obviously that's going to be a, a firestorm. Um, but there's no way it's not impacting recruiting. I think as soon as NIL, you know, became legal. Um, you saw athletic departments and individual programs, football and basketball and all that hiring brand managers, that that's what they do is they work specifically with the student athletes on those teams to be able to help guide them. Those individuals guaranteed were in recruiting meetings talking about how this is a professional development opportunity for these individuals. And it's wonderful, like those opportunities for them to think about the business aspect of it and the brand management and self, you know, self-promotion, all that is great. Um, as an academic person, you know, I think that takes away from some of those other things that you typically are wanting them to focus on at least early on in their careers as student athletes is, you know, how do I transition into life as a college student and a college student athlete and all of that. Um, but I think as Lakeisha mentioned and Adam as well, there has to be some type of legislation because those NIL deals that are happening in the collectives that are being created, um, there's no way they're not an inducement to a student. We accept jobs because of the money that we could be paid in that job. Why wouldn't a student athlete make their decision about where to go to school based on the same thing? Um, and so in that recruiting, um, I think, you know, you have to put some type of parameters around that um, or it's really going to get out of hand state to state. I think the other interesting thing on the flip side of that is decisions that student athletes are making towards the end of their careers that could be impacted by NIL. So I might be, you know, a student athlete who's thinking about leaving college early um, to go, you know, play professionally somewhere. But my NIL opportunities might be more lucrative if I stay in school than it might be for me to play professionally. And so how does that impact kind of roster management, recruiting and transfer portal and all that stuff that's happening in college athletics as well. So uh, really interesting times. Yeah. That, and, and not to make it a whole conversation about name, image, and likeness, but that was one question that I was going to ask sort of the logical progression of that is, you know, you could see the change or the shift of a student, student athlete being paid, you know, talking about those deals from a recruiting perspective, potentially more than they are from a professional perspective. And so, I mean, do we think that there is the potential that that could cause student athletes to stay in college. And, and do we think that that is a good or bad thing? You know, we often belabor, we often bemoan the uh, one and done, right, situation in college basketball. And, you know, being someone that went to undergrad at Purdue, right, um, it, the thing that we would always get was that the teams were better because they stayed around longer. Student, you know, bath athletes stayed around longer. So you can see positives to that too. But it's just an interesting dichotomy of a student athlete thinking, well, I, this could be more lucrative for me to stay here. Yeah, and I think just even the premise of this, the the direction that your question or 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 what you kind of teed up there, I, I think that's interesting. And it seems like Bryce, you you and I have chatted about this offline too. The the kind of default way that we think about this 
it seems is always through basketball and football, right? Because we're talking about these multi-million dollar deals and endorsement, and they're going to make more than they could if they go pro. And, you know, that's, that's the vast majority of the conversation. And I understand that because, you know, the money's sexy and it's what everybody wants to talk about. And it's what everybody wants to know about. Um, but, you know, there's 180,000 division one student athletes and the NCAA themselves say that, you know, 2% are going pro. And I don't have the answer to this, um, but it's just a, a a thing that always pops back up into my mind is like, okay, this, this is true. We talk about transfer portal. We talk about, you know, retaining talent and whether or not they go pro or don't go pro. But um, I think it's also important to think about how this impacts that entire 98% of other student athletes that aren't going to go pro or, or that path to professional sports doesn't even exist in our country. Um, you know, not to mention in those revenue generating sports, like, you know, how does this impact the offensive lineman, the defensive lineman, or, you know, so I, again, I, I don't have the answer to that. I, I kind of, you know, did the, the professor thing where I just throw out an interesting wrinkle, but uh, I think that's another, that's another consideration when we talk about how legislation comes down, how legislation is applied. Like, you know, we can't just think about it being applied to the quarterback of the football team or, you know, a, a, a number one um, draft pick, uh, predicted draft pick um, on a basketball team. It's, it's, it's a lot broader um, than, than just that. I would say I think anytime you can keep a student athlete in school longer, no matter what sport they are, you know, because I think there are opportunities for student athletes from Olympic sport programs to go and play professional in a way that there haven't always been. And so the longer we can keep them in school um, and get them closer to their degrees or achieving those degrees, you want to do that. And so I think, you know, if NIL can play a part in that, then, you know, that's that's definitely a benefit. So again, like like I said, not to make this all about name, image, like this, but it is a big, big topic. But it also kind of snowballs into some other things that are really impacting college sports. Adam, you know, actually we've all mentioned sort of the transfer, the transfer portal, and the changing in transfer rules. And I think, you know, back Kristen to what you you said just a minute ago about keeping students in school. Some of those changes in transfer rules enable students to stay in school longer because of the eligibility. And I, I would be curious to what all of you think about, you know, the positives and negatives of of that, and, and sort of the shifting landscape because of the openness of the ability for students to transfer and, and how those have opened up. I think I'll start. I, I actually have mixed feelings about the the transfer portal and, and, and what it does. Um, I think what we're seeing now is student athletes are now getting the ability to dictate their own college career in a sense, because, you know, before it was, you had to, if you transferred, you had to sit out a year. Well, you know, some will say it's just a year, but for an athlete, that's huge. So like that, that's a year that I am not participating in something I've been playing all my life for most, um, just because I want to go to another school. And so you had athletes that were stuck, that just stayed unhappy, whatever the reason might have been, they stayed. But now you get the transfer portal and it's like, hey, I can enter this and I dictate this. I can choose to enter this. Not you put me in, but I actually, as a student athlete, can choose to you know, put myself out there. And, and for some student athletes, I think it's a humbling experience because you think you're so great and you're out there and you, you know, I'm ready. And then you, no one is, no one's communicating with you. That's a humbling experience too. So, so it, it's different for the student athlete, but on the flip side of that, I think recruiting changes like that, put that that's put a new dynamic into how coaches 
you know, recruit. No longer is there the day where I actually, you know, have someone recording my plays in high school and all my greatest hits, and I'm sending that out to folks, and you know, and I'm sending that out to schools. No, technology one, the transfer portal has changed how recruiting is done, has changed um, the access that coaches and others actually have to um, to the student athletes now. And so I think while it may be beneficial to the thought of the student athletes being able to actually own their own college destination, the flip side of it is kind of changing what we know of college athletics as well. It, it's kind of doing, and, and right or wrong, who knows, I guess we'll still find out. Um, and I, I think it'll just be something else. We, if this doesn't work, it's just going to be something else because that's just the nature and of, of things. And that's just how college athletics are evolving now. I would agree with Lakeisha. I have kind of mixed feelings about it from an athletic administrator perspective. Um, I think it's important to listen to the student athletes' needs, you know. And if we've learned anything over the last couple of years, um, student athletes have a greater voice than they ever have. And one of the things that they're telling us they need is more ownership over their own experience, right? So the opportunity for them to make these decisions is important. Um, but right now we're also in this kind of like year-long free agency, and it's just you know, coaches are recruiting incoming first year student athletes, and then they have this transfer portal. And so what do I do? Do I find somebody with experience? Do I get a new person? If I'm bringing in a lot of transfers, that changes the dynamic of my team a couple years from now, you know, so they're having to think, you know, even further out than they did before about, about how this might impact recruiting and the long-term success of their teams and all of that. Um, I do think there's challenges like Lakeisha mentioned with, you know, from a student athlete mental health perspective, you know, as you think about, I'm going in the portal and I'm, I'm running for this big change and the portal is overflowing and there's more students in it than there are scholarships available. And so what does that mean for me then if I'm not one of those people that's getting attention? On the flip side of that, I go into the portal because I think I want to, you know, make a change and I'm bombarded by people. You know, I've seen student athletes experience that where it's the recruiting process from high school all over again and it's overwhelming and they don't expect that and they're trying to manage that with also, you know, keeping up with their workouts and staying in shape and doing school and doing NIL and all these other things and uh, you know, it just becomes a real challenge on their time. Um, so I think, you know, there's good and bad to it. The solution to that is probably to put some limitations on how that portal operates, I think. And, you know, whether that's a certain time of year or, you know, whatever that might be, um, I think we need to figure that out quickly. Yeah, I think there's so many things, you know, it's interesting, too, in the sense that the the transfer rules obviously amidst where we are today, right, with the eligibility and, and because of some seasons being canceled and so on, has given students, you know, in a positive sense. I, I can say from 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 an educator's perspective, there are students in in my course now that were given an extra year of eligibility because of those things, and now can continue their education because of it. And I think that you there's always going to be situations like that where you see someone is then able to transfer and continue their education in in some ways. But there are the pieces that play back into everything that that we all said here of it becomes a recruiting process again, or, you know, the, the pieces that could happen from, uh, you know, it, not being overwhelmed by, by the offers that, that are there. An interesting question that, that came from the audience that kind of bridges these two things that we've talked about is, you know, could, could a player in, enter the transfer portal for sole purposes of, you know, from recruitment for NIL deals, right? Their NIL deals could be better someplace else. And I think it's an interesting bridging of those, those gaps there. 
for I sure. Think, they, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Um, I think, you know, as we hear about these collectives at schools that are offering opportunities, right, those are private entities. They're not managed by the universities, um, but we have to believe they're going to impact recruiting in some way. And so if I'm a, a transfer prospect and I, you know, I might be able to go to an institution or I'm getting, you know, um, looks from an institution that has this really lucrative collective, um, why wouldn't that be an inducement for me to think about that school in a way that I maybe wouldn't have before? Yeah, I, I agree with that. I also think that actually opens up an interesting legal, or I should say, you know, being the lawyer issues, because remember, NIL, the school can't dictate your NIL bill. They are not supposed to be involved in that. And then the portal, it should just be the school that actually can communicate with you. So it's 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 tricky. And if it does impact that, if you do get a better, better endorsement deal, how how legal, for lack of a better, or, or how, you know, how is that working? Um, and so it's interesting. I, I think Kristen pointed out the best way would be through these collectives. And you as the student athlete would need to know where these things exist, because the moment that the school actually starts talking to you about the NIL deal, especially as a transfer, we're back to that recruiting inducement, that issue that we have, that pay for play that keeps coming up, you know, we're back to those issues. So it's tricky when you're dealing with you know, NIL and the transfer portal. That's where, I mean, I, I agree with everything that was said. Of course, everything's going to impact everything right now because there, there aren't really clear guidelines. And, you know, especially when you look at um, a, a player who maybe is in a state that has incredibly restrictive legislation transferring to an institution in a state that has no legislation, um, I mean, to 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 think that it doesn't or won't impact, um, you know, a student's understanding or decision making process, I, I, I just think isn't is it's not possible to come to that conclusion. Um, and, and there's a lot of information, public knowledge out there about collectives and stuff. So, you know, it, it for sure will impact. And I think there was another question about whether or not in NIL uh, changes could potentially, you know, increase this chasm between, you know, power five schools and mid-majors. Um, again, I, I, I think that that has to, we, we have to, to believe that that will happen because it's already happened before NIL legislation was, was in place in terms of, you know, broadcasting contracts and deals and things like that. This is just another layer, um, that, that is added to the consideration. You know, all three of you actually have mentioned those collectives for all of us. Can you sort of explain what those mean, what that means and, and how those impact, you know, this entire situation? I'll take a stab at it and, and <laughs> can fill in uh, the gaps where I miss. But um, like Lakeisha mentioned, collectives are entities that are outside of the institution um, that are, are um, most of the time, you know, alum groups uh, or people who have uh, an interest in the success of the university and the athletics department who um, want to support through various ways um, athletes, whether that be NIL deals or kind of um, I think how it practically has played out is almost serving as that, that pseudo uh, broker um, of being able to, um, to educate, to um, introduce to NIL deals or even uh, make NIL deals themselves. That's a good explanation. But I think that, again, as we figure out all of not only the legislation pieces, but the university approaches, the athlete approaches, 
there's lots of facets to all of this. And I think it's really interesting to see who is involved in, in what sections of the chain they're sort of involved in. You know, one one thing we've talked about, you know, if you think historically, we talk today, the goal is to talk about the evolution of college sports. You know, thinking back historically for me, right, obviously uh, student athletes and the concept of amateurism has always been something that's ingrained for me, right? The transfer situation, right? We, when I was a young person, you see athletes staying for a long time. But as you know, Kristen mentioned, you sit out a year if you did transfer. But another thing that plays into that is is conference realignment, right? The, the shifting and changing of where those athletes play, who they play against, and, and the schools, and, and you know where they're collected together. And I think that that you can see how these things are all sort of directly connected. But I, I think that you know. As a, as a broad a question as it can get, how do we think that that conference realignment is impacting college athletics, if at all? Or do we think that because of sort of the globalization of, of our world and, and the shrinking of it because of technology in some ways and broadcast rights and so on, that it may not even have that much of an impact? I would say I think it's to be seen right now. I think, you know, obviously there's financial benefits. It's the reason why these conference realignments are happening. Um, but I think it'll be interesting to see what happens from an NCAA perspective. Um, so they obviously had a, a change to the constitution for the first time in years in January. Uh, the division one kind of unit uh, within the NCAA has a transformation committee now who's been tasked with kind of rethinking the rules and what does that look like? And so I think once that committee comes out with, you know, their guiding principles and their rule changes and things like that, it may impact, you know, the structure as we know it and the model of amateurism and, you know, the three divisions that could look really different, you know, so I think it's all to be seen how those NCAA changes impact some of the conference things yet to be seen. I'm really curious to see, you know, as we look at conference realignment, what does it do to the student athlete experience? And it, I think it's something people aren't thinking about right now because it's more about the money and the media rights. And, you know, how do we kind of get everything on paper from a business perspective outlined, but what does it mean then when I played in a conference where I was able to bust to a lot of my games and things like that, and now I'm flying all the way across the country. Um, and so it changes my schedule. It changes my kind of how I manage my time as a student athlete. Um, it puts a little more pressure on me if I'm in a more hog powered conference and we used to be great. And now we're just, you know, um, one of those other fish in the sea. And what does that look like? So I think, you know, that's to be seen as well, but that's kind of down the road once the business pieces of it get put into play. I totally agree with Kristen. I think it, it really is. We don't know yet, you know, what that impact will be because there's so many things that are moving. I think we heard a whole lot about the whole, you know, uh, conferences were switching and that was the conference realignment was a big thing. But then again, the NCAA surprised us. We do the Constitution and change everything back up. Um, and so you have that and that impacts that because what what division one, two and three will look like after all of this. The dust is settled. We don't know. Um, will there be a fourth division? Will there be, you know, will there be schools that are not part of the NCA? Whatever that might be, we just don't know. So I think while from the business side of this conference realignment is still moving along because from a dollar sense to some, it makes sense. Um, however, I think it's still a lot of schools, and, and I know this just from clients, have kind of put a pause on, okay, well, let's just put a, you know, let's put a pin in this discussion because we don't know what's going to happen. We Let's see what else plays out because we don't want to go someplace. And then we realize we've just left a conference where we would have been more beneficial after all of these changes, after the dust has settled. 
we should have stayed there. And so I think you, you, you hear still a lot about them wanting to make the move, um, but it all comes from a business sense. And then you have the fights. Some conferences don't want you in. Some conferences don't want to let you go. And, and that turns into litigation. That turns into a loan process that doesn't happen so quickly. So I think um, it, it's yet to be seen the impact that that will have. Well, from a from a media dollars standpoint as well, I mean that uh, that kind of environment or or ecosystem is changing so much and and so quickly with all of the new streaming services that are popping up and you know at the professional level you just saw Apple TV sign a deal with Major League Baseball like you see Amazon Prime spinning up um, YouTube TV's got so there's all of these you know it's not just the three major broadcasters that are, that are uh, you know kind of. Um, entering into this conversation. And so that's just a, an additional wrinkle of, we don't, we don't know what's, what's going to spin up, who's going to be able to make a play um, in terms of broadcasting and media and how that impacts things. So yeah, that's it, it brings up, you know, the Keisha you brought up an interesting point that has is, is come up in a couple of the questions from, from the audience is that, you know, how these things shake out and how the dust settles, it will be very interesting. Could there be another division or could there be, whether it's, you know, power five schools or group of power five schools that split off and aren't part of the NCAA, you know, for someone who has such a ingrained, you know, love of college sports, like that almost seems sacrosanct to me in some ways, but and I know the answer to this is probably just like we've talked about with we'll see how the dust settles. But do we think that's an actual possibility? I think on the face of this, from the public perspective, everyone's like, it's just a no brainer. This is just great. But I think you really have to understand the business of the conferences. And it's not just what the public sees. And so separating and pulling out, it, it becomes something else. Now you have to govern yourself. Now you are the person that they point the fingers at. Right now, everybody can point the fingers at the NCAA, big bad guy. But when you separate, you become the pointing of the fingers. And so I think that will change a lot of the dynamics. That too, I definitely think we'll see. I think conferences may feel like they'll get with the new constitution and the ability of, you know, to change things and to change uh, the NCAA and how that looks. Um, who knows? They may find that they get exactly what they want with within the you know new change structure. So I, I think it's just a lot of wait and see, but I think it's a lot more in running a conference and pulling away and some of the benefits that go into be, being a part of the NCAA that, for, for most of the public, they're not aware of. If you're not if you're not inundated, then March Madness or what you see on TV, there's a lot more that goes into that that makes a pull away, you know, just as difficult, um, if not harder than some of the other things that we've seen take place. So I think we'll see. I think, you know, I would expect that they are going to fiercely protect the amateurism model in whatever way they possibly can. You know, so the idea that we are not professional sports, we are not a semi-professional league, we are an amateur league, we want to remain different. And so we're going to do everything we can to protect that. Um, we're going to protect the idea that a, a student athlete needs to be a student at their institution. You know, those are some of the things that 
you know, define college athletics over the professional realm. And so they're going to do everything they can to do that. I think as Lakeisha mentioned, the financial piece of it, you know, so all of the money from the NCAA comes from championship ticket sales and, you know, the media and marketing rights with the NCAA men's basketball tournament. Are schools really willing to pull away from that money that they're receiving through their conference um, and to go off on their own? I don't know that that makes sense for them right now. Um, you're still seeing schools that are kind of reeling from COVID and some of the budgetary challenges they had from that. And, um, you know, so I think people are going to let that civilly kind of play out a little bit and let's see what happens uh, before they make any of those big decisions. Well, it kind of spins back to something that Adam said earlier, right? And, and Lakeisha really dug in on this in the sense of us as consumers, we see college football, we see men's basketball, we see women's basketball. Those are the highest profile sports. But there's so many things underneath that, that what does conference realignment mean for swimming and diving? What does conference realignment mean for track and field? You know, what does conference realignment mean for something like women's lacrosse, which at Northwestern is an enormous sport, but if they, you know, the conference was realigned and, and it, it could it could degrade that experience for those sports too. And I think that, that there's so much more that goes into it. And, you know, me, my background is in direct-to-consumer streaming, you know, I'm certain that people that I work with on a day-to-day basis would love to see, you know, the biggest schools in college football break off and form their own league that they could stream directly to consumers and they could sell it for a high premium. But that on paper sounds nice. But when you get underneath that, there's so many considerations that would have to, to come into it. You know, I think that one thing that all of you have mentioned and, and you know, one last thing that we want to talk about before we take some questions is – one thing that, that you all have done a great job of mentioning, but I think sometimes actually forget, gets forgotten in this whole all of these situations, is the athlete. The athlete themselves. These are kids in some senses, right? Young adults, student athletes. It, do, how do we think, and many of you, Kristen, you've touched on it a couple of times, all of these things have to have an impact on the student athlete. And, and how do we think that their, their well-being is being impacted by, you know, navigating the NIL space? Because not just all of us trying to figure it out on this, you know, session here, but student athletes are trying to figure that out. Conference realignment, as you mentioned, I may play different places. Mom and dad can't come. I don't ride a bus. Um, you know, all the transfer. Am I going to transfer? Can I transfer? Where can I go? Being inundated. No one wanting, you know, to make an offer. These all have to have a huge impact on the on the health and well-being of the student athlete. And I think that, that that's one thing that often gets overlooked. So, I mean, do we see that today? Do we see a big impact on those student athletes? Oh, we may not necessarily see it or hear about it, but it's taking place. Um, I, I was like, and, and we hear about some, I, I will take that back. We do. We definitely hear about some. The pressure, just listening to you actually, you know, identify all the things that they're dealing with is enough anxiety for me to be like, wow. And then you add that on top of graduating and passing and playing, you know, and at the end of the day, I, I always say why NIL is great for student athletes. They're getting paid. I'm like, but taxes aren't. And I, if I could have avoided having to pay taxes as long as I, when I think back at that, at, at 18, at 19, I'm not thinking about that. I'm just seeing the money. But as you, there's a lot that comes with that. Um, and so I think those, those are pressures. And then you have the pressure to, for some, I'm still taking care of my family. I got family back at home and, and things of that nature. It's a lot. And we're seeing 
we're seeing students actually break under that pressure. And, and we're seeing more schools really take a look at the mental health and putting things in place for schools, you know, whether they are psychologists that are just there for the athletes that are, you know, that's part of the counseling centers and things of that nature, or it's, it's a profession afterwards, you know, where you find there are literally sports psychologists that just deal with the impact of, I was a star player. I got hurt. I can't play anymore. What does that do mentally? There are so many student athletes that their identity is the sport in which they play. And when that's no longer there, whether it's because I'm injured and I no longer can play, I graduate and I didn't make pro. All of those things are, are, are stresses on a student athlete. And so I think we can't forget that. I, I, I think we need to really focus and, and, and recognize that impact that all of this has on who this is supposed to protect, the student athlete. At the end of the day, this is the student athlete experience. All of this should be done for the student athlete, but sometimes they get lost in all the glory, the media, the money, and all of this, the health of the student athlete gets lost. I think from a higher ed perspective, you know, we look two years back, right? So even prior to COVID starting in the spring of 2020, there was, you know, the beginnings of a mental health crisis in higher education. You know, you were seeing that on college campuses across the country where the need for mental health professionals couldn't meet the demand that was there from students. And that very obviously kind of, you know, overflows into the student athlete population. They have more pressures than a regular student on campus to be able to manage. Um, and then you throw COVID in there. You throw in all of the social injustices that have been happening over the last couple of years. Then you throw in NIL deal changes in the transfer legislation. Should I be in the portal? Should I not be in the portal? And so there's like a million things that you're asking them to manage and think about when they're 18 and 19 years old and they haven't had to do any of this and now they're on their own for the first time. I mean, so much of, of my job from an academic services and student development perspective was that transition from high school to college and like, how do we do that and do that smoothly and set a good foundation? Now there's like 17 more things that you're asking these, you know, first year college student athletes to manage. Um, and it's just, it's overwhelming for them. So I absolutely think it takes a toll on their mental health. I think, you know, they're not even day to day thinking about things like conference realignment and stuff like that, you know, those are, that's at a much higher level, but those things are going to eventually impact them. And um, how, you know, from my perspective, so much of what athletic departments need to do is figure out like, how do we help them manage that? They've made huge strides in bringing in, like Lakeisha mentioned, more mental health professionals that work specifically with student athletes. There's been a destigmatization and, you know, help seeking behavior from student athlete perspective, which is awesome, um, but it's still not enough, you know, and so we just have to keep working at it and keep punching away and keep trying to find ways to meet the needs of the students as they tell us what they need. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of these decisions that we just talked about, you know, for the last 50 minutes, these are decisions that are going to directly impact them and they, you know, they're smart. They fully recognize they have no agency over the direction that those decisions go, which is, you know, another stressor, anxiety, concern. And then, you know, one thing that I think has been uh, mentioned every now and then, but, you know, you add in that we're in this social media age where there's this democratization of access to student athletes. And there is this elevated um, uh, uh, kind of presence that they have on, on national media. And you get people who who have a direct line of access to them. And um, we've chatted about this a little bit, but there's the democratization of access. But then there's also that that 
misunderstanding of expertise. And, you know, you think because you've been watching college basketball for 15 years that, you know, better than them and you get in their DMs and, you know, they, they're coming off of a COVID year and they're trying to understand all this NIL stuff. And then they just lost, you know, probably one of the biggest games of their year. And um, there's a there's a lot that's getting thrown um, at them at one time. And, and it's it's a massive uh, it's a massive stressor for sure. Yeah, I mean, I, it's it is incredible. I think that all of these things that we talked about, the evolution of sports, I, I think that it is important. I think all of you brought up the point that it is important to keep the athlete central in this, right? Because the, without the student athletes, there are no college sports. And I think that we're talking about all these things that we can do around you know, the, the changing and shifting and moving. But if, if the, the health and wellness and the care for those athletes isn't there, the whole model's not sustainable, right? You know, it, to spin that into some questions from, from the audience, and we've done a really good job of, of getting some of these questions that are directed at, but one, you know, we can take these in the seven minutes we have left, so, sort of quick hit actions here. But it, the, the first of those kind of plays back into both the, the, the well-being of student athletes and the NIL pieces that with the pressures this brings, do we think the NIL model is sustainable? Now, I guess I would say I would qualify this question a little bit is that that NIL model, we don't know what it's going to be 15 minutes from now. Um, you know, as, as we were preparing for this discussion yesterday and Lakeisha says, yeah, we're in good shape unless some news comes out tomorrow. Right. And so it, do we think the model or its evolution is sustainable because of the pressures it puts on not only students, but universities? I think the, the quick hit answer of that is, is simply yes, only because, you know, you can't put the jelly back in the donut, right? Like we're, we're here. And in order for this to work, we will have to come up with a way for it to work. And, and so the short answer is, is yes, the model that we have right now, I would say isn't sustainable because we don't really have a model, but we will get to that place and it, it, it will work. So another one that kind of plays into this, do we see rules uh, to protect student athletes who decide to change, you know, um, from a transfer perspective um, or penalties from a monetary perspective for a school, student athletes, uh, meaning that that again, back to these protections, you know, the transfer portal, uh, there's a lot of freedoms in that. But do we see, you know. Are there any constructs in place that could that are student oriented that that say, hey, you know, your your conference realigned and they left and that may have hurt your ability to continue to play or your exposure or those things. Is that something that's even thought about? So prior to even the transfer portal being in place, there were rules within the NCAA that would allow student athletes, you know, if their their school cut their sport or things like that, you know, give them some flexibility in that transfer process. And, um, you know, so I think you're going to continue to see that no matter what the rule changes are from an NCAA perspective. Um, but, you know, I think what's interesting um, it's just, you know, kind of thinking about um, as, as a student goes into the transfer portal, making sure as the institution that you're talking to them about what that means, right? So most institutions, if I'm a student athlete that elects to go into the transfer portal, that means I'm giving up my scholarship. I'm, you know, I don't get to like kind of dance around in the portal and, you know, see what's out there for me and then come back to my team. That's typically not acceptable. Um, and so, you know, you're going to see those students typically signing off on something that says, I, you know, I likely am going to give up my 
my scholarship because I, I want to transfer from the institution that allows, you know, the, the institution to be able to use that aid for other student athletes and things like that. But um, will something change in that type of protection? Maybe, you know, um, years ago, the NCAA implemented the four-year scholarship, you know, and that was a protection for students that when you sign your, you know, athletic scholarship, you're signing for four years. And um, not all institutions did that. Northwestern was one that was really early in that game, kind of did it before the regulations came in place. Um, that was meant as a protection, but now the transfer portal takes some of that away when a student decides they want to leave. And so I, I'll be curious to see what those rule changes might look like. So I would just quickly add to that. I think you will see that, especially with conference realignment, because a lot of the penalties could be, you know, you can't participate in the championship if you leave. Like there's a lot of those things. And that's a current as it current stands, that's an issue. And so I think it'll be a heightened issue um, that will have to come to some type of resolution, because at the end of the day, when people that are making these decisions make the decision, they're not necessarily looking at who on my roster won't be able to play because we have to sit out a year or we can't participate in the, you know, in, in a championship. So I think it will be, become a heightened issue that has not been fully addressed yet. Um, but I think as Kristen says, you know, they're moving to putting rules in place that will, that will help, you know, address some of the issues that the student athletes actually face because of a business decision um, that an athletic director or a, a president or a commissioner actually makes. Yeah. Absolutely. I think, you know, this, there's a great question here in the, and, and thank you everyone for, for the questions. We'll continue to try to answer those too in the chat as well. But I think, you know, in the time that we have left a great question to end on because of the expertise of all the people, all three of you, you know, I, th I think this is a really interesting point because we've talked about the evolution of, of, of college athletics, but without sort of the clear limitations on things like the transfer portal and, and name, image, and likeness and conference realignment, um, you know, in an ideal world, as college athletics continue, continues to evolve, what would you see? How would you describe, you know, an ideal college athletics in 10, 15, 20 years from now? What, what could the shape of that actually look like? That's always a great question um, because there's so much, at least in my opinion, there's so much unsettled things right now that it, it that it's hard to say what that will look like. I do think there will be some form of NIL that moves forward. I do think that the student athlete uh, will get a little bit, you know, more autonomy on their own college, you know, career for me in 10 years. That 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 would be great. Um, I think what you will find out more so than anything um, is that the student athletes are realizing and recognizing the voice that they actually have and the power that the student athlete actually has over all the business decisions and everything else. I think student athletes are, you know, are recognizing the power that they have and they are and they are their own internal activists and, and college athletic activists. This is what we feel like we should have. And I think you will see more of that if the business side and the adults don't get it together, then I, I, I think you will see more student athletes rise to the challenge of making things happen that they actually think would benefit them. Yeah, I, I, ideally, you know, this is the t tagline I use for one of my classes, but sports are this driver and this measuring stick for, for societal change, right? It's, it's an amazing tool. And to be able to have that underneath the umbrella of an educational institution is a wonderful thing. I think ideally, you know, as we see more agency move 
towards the athletes, that's, that's I, I think, a win across the board. There's a lot of money in place. There's a lot of opportunity in place. Um, the more of that that can go to the athletes themselves, I think, I think is a win. And my final note would be, you know, you said 10 to 15 years from now, I think like two years from now, it's going to look dramatically different than it does right now. I think that's the general feeling amongst athletic administrators um, that that change is coming. I wouldn't be surprised that we see a different division. I mean, there's just so much um, separation in division one between some of the mid-major schools and the budgets of these power five institutions. So I wouldn't be surprised if we see that, what, you know, what exactly that looks like, how that plays out um, will be really interesting. Um, but I do think, as Lakeisha mentioned, this student athlete voice is going to be centralized. One of the changes in the NCAA constitution was they, re on the board of governors, so the NCAA board of governors, they reduced the membership size of that, but also gave increased opportunity for student athlete voice. And so as these changes come about, you know, they have to be willing to listen to the needs of students, the wants of students, and, and put those, you know, at the forefront. Well, it's been a great discussion. I think that we could continue this for hours and there's so many things to, to cover, but, uh, you know, I appreciate uh, Adam, Chris and Lakeisha, the time and the insights that you had around us. We appreciate everyone that, that attended today and, and for all the questions and, you know, all of us as college sports fans and, and, and people that, that work, you know, indirectly or tangentially to college sports or have a vested interest in this and, and we really be, you know, it'll be interesting to see how these things continue to evolve. So we appreciate the time from, from everyone today.